Our Father, we do pray and ask that even as by inspiration of your Spirit, Paul wrote and reminded the Ephesians he prayed for them that we would have eyes, the eyes of our heart enlightened to understand what is the greatness and the mystery of our redemption in Christ, to know that we are the inheritance of Christ, to know that indeed our sins have been forgiven because they have been laid on Christ, that we will never know who know you the full measure of our sin. We will never know what it means to be separated from you because Christ endured those three hours of darkness, a very life of suffering, the end of which our Lord, you cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Having for us drank down to the dregs the full cup of God's just wrath for our sin so that we would not have to, so we could stand here and sing songs to you, so we could pray to you with the confidence that you hear and we're accepted in the beloved, with the certainty that one day we will meet you in the air or rise from the grave, whatever the timing of your return is. But we will be with you forever, and we long for that day. Keep us faithful until then. And even this morning, prepare our hearts to hear a testimony of your saving grace in the life of Stephen, and Lord, teach us from Romans 14, Holy Spirit, and some principles and how we are to treat one another and so demonstrate your life in us to a watching world. Uh, These things we pray in your name, O Christ. Amen. Well, if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans 14, the book of Romans, chapter 14, which is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. Obviously, it's a long chapter. We're not going to be able to get into it in detail. It's not a full exposition, as you were, as it were, uh, of the chapter. But we do want to draw out of it principles that carry us forward from the topic that we brought up last week, which was namely how we as the church are to treat one another in light of holding different positions and different convictions on any variety of things, certainly. Paul is not talking about COVID in Romans 14, but that is where we find ourselves, among, again, many other things, finding so much dissension and disagreement and factions uh, within the body of Christ uh, and in the world, of course, but we expect that in the world, not so much as in the church. Now, there are two general points in which we are going to talk about this. The first was simply noting, giving a broad picture of the confusion and the chaos Uh, that our culture has and that the church has in light of COVID-19 mandates. And we gave, as I said, a broad picture of this. Uh, There are a variety of complexities surrounding this situation. There are a variety of convictions that people have. And the general appeal was that we need to let each person reason through, think through these things on their own, appreciate the complexities that face each person and the variety of conditions that inform their circumstances that might lead them to conclusions different from one another. That was the general appeal. As I'll repeat more than once, it is not to say that we are not to have our own arguments, our own convictions, and our own positions, and even at times try to appeal and persuade others of those. It is simply to say that God is concerned with the way that we go about it, and that is the burden of the Apostle Paul, particularly in Romans chapter 14 and really all of Scripture. At the end of the day, the primary concern is not the issues themselves, but how we treat one another in coming to, or how we treat one another and how we defend and and speak of them. And so that is then going to be the the heart of the second point uh, that I'll mention this morning. And that is namely this, that charity in light of Christian conviction and conscience. Charity in light of Christian conviction and conscience. How we are to treat one another with a gracious attitude, with a loving perspective in light of our many disagreements that we'll have this side of heaven. I know that we all kind of feel that it'll all be worked out in the end because when we're in heaven, then everybody will see that we were right and they'll agree with us and there'll be no more problems. But until then, we have to accept that other people uh, are going to come to a different conclusion on various matters. And we have to understand that. Uh, Before I note this first point, let me uh, mention as well briefly that We will be coming into the book of Revelation, and that's going to be uh, 
a place where we can put this into practice uh, down the road, as we know that people have a variety of convictions on that. I'll, I'll mention that a bit later. Uh, but we'll be beginning that in probably another month or so. We'll start our ascent to it in a couple of weeks. But we need to remember in all of these things that Christ is to be at the center of our affections and our convictions. And that actually is the first point under this second large point, charity in light of Christian conviction and conscience. And it is this, that Christ must be central in all of our convictions. Christ must be central in all of our convictions. That is really comprised the overall point uh, in Romans 14, verses 1 through 12. Let me, let me read that, and then we'll swing back around and look at it. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. He who eats, does so for the Lord. He who gives, and he gives, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now just to note up front, the, the overall context here, again, just in the, in the broadest possible terms, are Paul is addressing a church that is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And of course, being Jews and Gentiles, they come out of very different backgrounds. They have very different experiences, very different life experiences that have informed their consciences even as after they have come to faith in Christ. And it is a complex situation for why there are Jews and why there are Gentiles and why there are those differences of background and conviction and understanding that come with them. Uh, there's also a blending of crossing over of, of these things among the two groups. So, for example, you have Jews clearly coming out of the Mosaic law with dietary laws and certain festal days and so on and so forth. That would have been, they would have carried that over even in their faith in Christ, not as a means of earning or contributing to their salvation, but as a means of how they honor and express their worship to God. You have Gentiles who had none of those things and felt much more freedom and they would have brought that into the church. But then you have variants within those groups because you have different measures of faith. And you have Jews that would have felt free, Paul himself for example, to have not be bound to uh, previous laws and things that informed his conscience related to food and to days. But then you would have had other Jews who did carry them over. And then on Gentiles, you would have had those who did not carry in any kind of concerns about food. And then others who may have been influenced by understanding the history of the Jews and out of which their salvation came. And so they had more of a legalistic attitude towards those things. So it's all mixed up together. It's a rather complex situation. And so Paul is addressing that. He's addressing the, the way in which those things were worked out. And it's just one other broad note we'd, we'd point out here that Paul is not addressing things here related to how one is saved. He's not addressing how a person is saved or the gospel. He's talking about to Christians and he's talking about particular uh, convictions within those who are truly redeemed and truly saved. Well, obviously, these differences were causing contentions among them because he begins right at verse 1 with the appeal, the command to accept one who is weak in faith but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. In other words, he's noting that there are different opinions, there are different levels of faith, and the command comes out of clearly the problem that they were not accepting one another, and particularly here, the strong were not accepting those who were weak in faith. 
And so you had two basic attitudes, those who were strong, in other words, those who said, I understand the implications of the gospel, and I understand that it takes away all of those previous concerns about how we were to worship God. And then there were those who were weak, and they still felt very sensitive to that in their conscience. And so Paul does acknowledge that there is a strong and a weak faith. He's not passing over that fact. And the tendency of the strong was to pass judgment, and the tendency of the weak it was to hold those who eat with contempt in their heart. And it was a mess, and we certainly can understand that because these kind of issues continue in the church today. Now again, I, I do want to mention this. We have to be careful here. Paul is not saying, again, that it's wrong to have different views. As a matter of fact, Paul isn't even really, in this passage, addressing the issue of the different opinions. He's not even addressing primarily the religious concerns of their, the different groups. He bypasses all of that. That's merely the incident out of which he's going to make his greater appeal. And that is namely how they treat one another. He makes no argument to convince the weak that they should be strong. And he makes no argument for the strong that they should in any way believe differently than they do. He's not making a appeal to the legitimacy of their position rather he's addressing the way in which they treat one another and that really is the issue and so here's one a general observation out of that is this that Christians can have different convictions without sinning against or dishonoring Christ and that's the idea Christians can have different convictions about how they are to live the Christian life or those things that they hold to as most importantly in the Christian life without sinning against Christ or dishonoring Christ. And that really is the key issue. Notice what he says here. This is uh, instructive for us. He says they are passing judgment on, if you have the New American Standard, it says opinions, or the ESV also has opinions. Uh, an older version, the American Standard Version, has uh, for decision of scruples. That's a, kind of an older way to say it, decisions of scruples. Uh, but opinions is a good translation of the term here. Uh, it's an interesting term. It's worth noting just briefly. In the gospel, it's, it's interesting. In the gospels, it's translated most often as thoughts or reasonings. Thoughts or reasonings. The way that someone thinks through a situation. In the epistles, it has more of a negative tone most often, and it's sometimes translated as disputing, as dissensions, or as arguments, and James 2.4 even related to evil motives. In all of this, however, the basic idea is this, and this is, is that it's, it speaks of coming to a conclusion based on a process of thought, based on a particular perspective. And coming to an occlusion, arriving at a conclusion because of that. That's the idea of the term. As a matter of fact, Paul's going to bring those two ideas uh, together in verse 5. When he says this. Uh, Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, he must be fully convinced, have a conviction that he has arrived at in his own mind because of the implication, implying there, because he has reasoned to that conclusion. He's reasoned to that conclusion. And so, in other words, it is an opinion. It is something that is held by someone because they have thought things through. They have certain resources that they're bringing to the question, resources of faith and background and so forth, and they have, that are informing their conscience, and therefore it is a conviction. And the big idea is then that you are going to have different opinions, and as Christians, again, we must allow each other to think differently as we work towards maturity of faith, as we work towards maturity of faith. And we have a hard time with this, though, don't we, sometimes? We have a hard time with this, even as Christians. Too often, these differences and these differences of conviction, rather than putting on display before a watching world the way that we can stand together in unity while disagreeing legitimately, uh, and sincerely on matters, too often we let it cause factions and divisions. Too often we become sectarian in our own attitudes towards one another. And it's really particularly sad when it's not even over issues that are doctrinal. It's not only, we're not talking about the deity of Christ. We're not talking about the nature of God as triune and the three persons of the Godhead. We're not talking about justification by faith here, by faith alone. We're not talking about any of those kind of things. He's talking about secondary matters. Secondary matters. How one is convicted that they should live before God. 
Nevertheless, again, Christians can display an amazing ability to look down on each other over these kind of matters. You've seen it. You've witnessed it. One actually said this, highlighting that it's not new. Christian history, alas, shows numerous examples of people utterly earnest about non-essentials who have felt at liberty to break the unity of the church for their particular fetish. And that is, unfortunately, how it happens. And it's, again, nothing new. That's, that's happened throughout the history of the church. It, Paul is having to address that many times, even in his epistles to the churches. You'll remember well where there was, even among the Corinthian church, the tendency to line up behind particular teachers. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Christ. And they were dividing over this. And each one of them was dividing and grounded in their own conscience was the fact that they were acting based on their desire to honor Christ and and acting in their desire to honor Christ, they were dishonoring Christ because they were breaking up the unity of the church over those things that should never have caused that kind of division. We can see that. We see that among our own circles. I am of John MacArthur. I am of John Piper. I am of R.C. Sproul. I am of Paul Washer, and whoever speaks outside of the, the, the position of my favorite teacher is suspect and is wrong. I only read John MacArthur books. I only read John Piper books. Yeah, those, we could go down the list. Those are two biggies. We do that. We do that. And we look down and we look with contempt on those who stand outside of the favorite teacher that we have decided to line up against, rather than letting Scripture guide us in all things. Or we line up behind particular doctrinal positions. We're covenantal or dispensational. We'll talk more about those terms down the road. I am of the covenant of grace. That's how I understand scripture. And you dispensationalists are weird. Dispensationalists. You covenantalists don't know how to rightly interpret scripture. And you're implying your theology, imposing your theology on the interpretation of the text. You're weird. And so it goes. It was kind of funny though. I have to say that uh, coming from Grace Church, I always appreciated the rapport that uh, Sproul and MacArthur uh, had with one another. Uh, one time when we were in North Carolina, however, uh, we went early to a conference that was at a Presbyterian church and uh, Sproul was there. And it was like a, remember, it was like a pre-conference thing. And so it was the Covenantal family. So we were like in the other camp. And uh, we remember hearing them talk and they were speaking very disparagingly of uh, dispensationalists. And we thought, ah, this is what goes on behind closed doors. But anyway, that was funny. But we do those kind of things. We can do it over doctrinal positions. We can do it over positions on spiritual gifts. Now, on that, I'm excluding clearly those things that are heretical, those things that are outside a sound body of faith and of the gospel. But there are sincere believers who hold different positions on the issue of tongues and spiritual gifts and the continuation of them and which ones we have, which ones we don't have, and so forth. And there's just a variety of things. In other words, this is not new. This is not something that is unique only to this church. It is the reality of us having remaining sin in us, even within those who are regenerate and those who truly believe in Christ. Now, I want to make another note on this, and this is just coming at the same point from a different angle. This is not to say that if it's not essential, it's not important, because that's another error that we can fall into. We can fall into the error of saying, well, it doesn't have to do with saving faith in Christ, therefore it's not important, and we can put all of that stuff aside. In other words, doctrine isn't really important outside of whatever it means to be saved. Well, that's not true either. Every word of Scripture is important. It's important that we have our positions well argued and defended and understood, and it's important that we can defend them and are willing to be corrected when another argument is brought our way or a clearer understanding of a passage. It's not to say that these things are unimportant and that we just never talk about difficult things. We just hold hands and love one another. It is to say that we can do so keeping things in their proper perspective with the right priorities of faith. And a matter of fact, that is the truest display of what Christian maturity looks like is that you can disagree and you can do so with a sincere care for one another. A second observation then is this, and this is what Paul is addressing really here up front is that convictions without Christ-likeness leads to censoriousness or judging one another, being having a censorious attitude towards one another, viewing one another with contempt. As a matter of fact, that's what he says in verse 3. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. He says in verse 10, in the middle, you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? This is 
when we hold to a position and a conviction without first a concern for Christ himself. And this term for contempt is a very serious term. As a matter of fact, let me just give you two instances because it picks up the same idea here, though it's... Uh, well, first, first one is in 1 Corinthians 1.28, and you're familiar with this. Speaking of how the world views the church, he says that we are, in the eyes of the world, Christians are despised, the despised things of the world. Same term here. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, it refers to the way that the false teachers condemned Paul. They said his speech was contemptible. It was contemptible, same term. Contempt despising, looking down upon, regarding as less than. And when this attitude is present in the heart of anyone and even within the church, it naturally leads towards judging one another, holding one another not only in contempt, but in derision, essentially, in condemning them. And so he does that in verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Again, verse 10. Why do you judge your brother? Why do you judge your brother? In other words, this contemptuous attitude led towards a feeling of superiority. And there's really no way to get around it that when we have that kind of attitude or where that kind of attitude is prevalent, it's only because there is beneath that a spirit of pride and that hated word that we know, self-righteousness. As a matter of fact, although the term is different, the idea is the same. In Luke 18, 9, that's precisely what Jesus addresses in the leadership of Judaism, the leaders of Judaism. He says in Luke 18, 9, a word that you're familiar with, introducing that, that well-known parable of the, the Pharisee who went into the temple to pray and he was praying against the tax gatherer. And, and so he, Jesus introduces that parable in this way. He says, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And what is the natural, natural, inevitable response when we have a sense of our own righteousness? Well, he says it secondly. He says they viewed themselves that they were righteous and they viewed others with contempt. Contempt. If we have a sense of righteousness within ourselves, then we naturally are going to view those who are less than we with a sense of contempt. And as I mentioned, it's going to lead to judging. To judging. This is another interesting term here. It's, interestingly, most often used in a positive sense. It has the idea, very often, of discerning, even of discerning good and evil. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, it says that those who have their senses trained to discern, that's our term, good and evil. Discernment, it's actually given as a gift of the Spirit, same term, 1 Corinthians 12, 10. But it also has the idea, negative ideas. It has the idea of doubt, that's the same terms translated doubt, actually, in verse 23 of Romans 14. Whoever doubts, whoever is waving, whoever has a double mind on an issue. It's used in that sense. And then of argument and disputing in other ways. But here, it has this idea. It has a decision made, a, a perception made, a judgment rendered of harsh criticism toward another. One that causes them not to accept the other as a brother, which again is the exhortation. Accept one another. In fact, it led to their rejection among these two groups who had contrary opinions. Let's just look at some of the other things by brief observation. The ways that Paul addresses that. The way that Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in other words, that God addresses that through him. And notice what he says first in verse 3. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. What does he say? For God has accepted him. God has accepted him. God has accepted your brother. If someone is truly a Christian, they belong to Christ. Christ died for them. His spirit indwells them. God loves them as a father. God has drawn them into intimate fellowship with himself. God has given them the same promises. God gives them the same care. God is intimately involved with their life in the same way he's involved with your life. God has accepted them. If God has accepted them, are we going to out-God God? Are we going to be more careful about who we accept than God himself is? Of course not. And that's the point that Paul is bringing out. Christ has already accepted us. He has already accepted us who belong to him. Therefore, we are to have the same attitude towards our brethren, listen, that Christ has towards them. 
and that Christ has towards us. We are to reflect that. And when we do, we reflect the life of Christ in us. Secondly, just observe this. That Christ is to be the end of all of our actions and attitudes, not self. Not self. Christ is to be the end of all of our attitudes and actions. Look at verses 6 through 8. We read it earlier. Let me, here, here's a little test. Here's a little hermeneutical exercise. See if you can find out an emphasis in this passage. Okay? Let's read it. Verse 6. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord. For he who gives thanks to God. He who eats not for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of, himself, one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, we, we, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Okay, here's a hermeneutical principle. When something's repeated that many times in a passage, it's something that the author wants to emphasize. Namely here that we are the Lord's. The Lord is the end of all of our actions. The Lord is the one who is the end of all of our, all of our convictions. He is to be the end, honoring him and serving him. That is the end of what we are to do. Not ourself, not our own particular conviction. The Lord and not self is to be the concern and end of all of our faith and our convictions. He is the beginning and end of our interest, our lives, our actions, and our hope. Our life is to be lived before him. Moreover, it means this. He is the Lord. It means that Christ is the one who's the ultimate authority anyway. He's the one who's the ultimate authority on the correctness of our conviction and of our faith. Look what he says in verse 9b again. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. He is the one. Lord implies his authority. It implies his headship over the church. He says, in verse 10, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God and he will evaluate us. So then the second thing is because Christ is to be the end of all of our actions, not self. Thirdly, notice that Christ indwells and is in present in each Christian. Therefore, how we treat one another is how we treat Christ. How we treat one another is how we treat Christ because we belong to the Lord. He says, if we live or if we die, we live or die because we are the Lord's. We belong to him. We are his. We are ultimately indwelled by him. As he'll make that point already in Romans, in verse chapter 8. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If anyone, the spirit of God indwells his people. He's already established that point. And so it is clearly behind here. That we are indwelled by the spirit of the living God, by the, living, the spirit of the living Christ, of the living God. And so how we treat one another is how we treat Christ. As a matter of fact, again, uh, not surprisingly, the Corinthians... Uh, provide a good background for this, but let me just remind you, in relation to similar issues of eating and idolatry, Paul says this to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 8, 12, and so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Why? Because Christ indwells them, because they belong to Christ, because he is in them. And so if we sin against them, we're actually sinning against the Christ whom we're claiming to love. And so we want to be very careful not to do that. One said this, when we pass swift judgment, uninformed, unloving, and ungenerous judgments, surely we have forgotten that if we speak evil of them, meaning the brethren, at the same time we speak evil of the Lord whose name they bear. And so we are to accept our brethren because Christ has accepted them. We are to realize that Christ is to be the end of all of our actions. We are to realize that that brother who we're interacting with or sister, Christ indwells them as he does us. And we are to remember that Christ alone is to be the judge of his people. Again, we already read it. Let me remind you. He says then that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 12, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Again, I want to repeat, he's not talking about the proper confrontation of sin, which we are to do. He's not talking about the proper place of rebuke and exhortation to one another in a holy life. He's not talking about those things. Those are all commands of Scripture. He's not even talking about, at times, the public rebuke, which we'll get to next time in 1 Timothy 5. An elder who sins and doesn't repent is to be rebuked publicly, so others will fear not to sin. He's not talking about that kind of thing. What he is saying that in matters that aren't sin, in matters that are of conviction, whether it be from weak faith or strong faith or whatever, 
we are to realize that God is their judge, not us. God is the one who will determine the rightness and the wrongness. So it's the humble recognition that we are not in the position to sit over one another as judge. But it goes even more than that. Moreover, we will all have to give an account to the Lord. Not only is the Lord the judge of our brother and our sister, but he's also our judge personally. And that makes it a little bit more clear. Again, verses 10 through 12, he says, Why are you judging your brother with contempt? For he grounds it in this very reason of why we shouldn't do that as one of his reasons. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. He had told the Corinthians again, you're familiar, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is a consistent appeal of the apostle of why we should live before him. Now here's the point. What is his judgment going to be? Is his judgment going to be when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and say, I judge you right, you strong in faith, because you knew that you could eat all things. You knew you could have a ham sandwich on rye, and those weak Christians didn't. You weak Christians, you wouldn't eat everything on the deli menu. Therefore, you are to be condemned. Is that how he's going to judge us? Are we going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the glorified Christ, and he's going to say, I accept you and come receive your reward because you did not take the COVID vaccine. Come and judge you and I'm going to receive you into my presence and you're going to have a reward because you didn't wear a skirt that was less than three inches above the knee. That's another issue, but. (laughs) But you see my point. How is he going to judge us? How is he going? What is going to be the evaluation? Well, holiness is comprehensive, so there's a variety of ways. But at the core of it, at the very heart of it, is when he looks at the totality of our life, and even as Paul is appealing to you here, and he's going to judge us by, did you walk in love? Did you walk in love towards your brethren? That's going to be the evaluation. His judgment and evaluation will not be on our argument for COVID, for critical theory, but how we loved him and each other in our handling of these very sensitive discussions at times. Very sensitive discussions. How did we go about it? Again, we're not talking about issues of sin or the saving truths of the gospel, but we are talking about the motives with which, out of which we act. Let me remind you of another verse on this point. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, he says this, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. We don't know the motives of a person's heart. We can deal only with the things that we observe, what is actually done, what is actually said. We can express concerns about where somebody may be coming from, but ultimately we don't know and we need to have that. But the Lord does and the Lord will bring it to account. That's his job, not ours. And so what he says, look in verse 15, we're going to jump down a bit, but I just want to pull out this phrase. He says, look, if you're judging, he says, you are no longer walking according to love. You're no longer walking in the middle of verse 15, walking according to love. That's what he judges us on. As a matter of fact, he said back in verse 8 of Romans 13, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not cover. And if there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the sum of it. If we did that, we wouldn't need the Ten Commandments if we loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we loved our neighbor of ourselves. Moses would have never had to go up on the mountain. Right? Because that would have been the natural outflow. We would not have done those things. We would not take God's name in vain. We would not dishonor parents. We would not blaspheme him. We would not steal and lie and murder and so forth and covet. Because we'd be walking in love. And so that's the measure. That's ultimately the measure. It's not so much the rightness of our position, but rather the way that we held it in Christian charity and grace. And so that's just the second big point. That charity then must govern all in all, all of our differences. Charity must govern in all of our differences. Uh, let me read this in verse 13 through 19. He says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. 
Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Now in this context, Paul is emphasizing the viewpoint primarily of those who are strong in faith and can eat and how they are to treat the others. But the measure of the real strength of real faith that applies to both groups, again, is this. Not the ability to grasp gospel implications, but demonstrating Christ's love. It's always seemed kind of rather odd to me, and I think it is to to you too, and not that we're exempt of this in our personal lives at times. But how maturity of faith is so often equated with the grasp of a doctrinal position, even when that position is so often held with a kind of arrogance and pride. It's totally backwards. I've just always found that to be curious. The mature person is the one who understands this doctrine. That's not at all how God looks at it. The mature person is the one who demonstrates the character of Christ. That is the mature person, and that is what we should be handling after. We should pursue greater understanding of these things, but the true maturity isn't that we can grasp difficult difficult concepts or put it together in clear and cogent ways. It is how they impact our heart and transform us to be like our Savior. That is the real issue, and that's what he's talking about here. We are to walk in love. We are to walk in love. In love. Now, these are tricky issues, and if we were going through this whole passage, we would, we would go down these roads, but this can be, very, this can be uh, very sensitive we need to, and as we would think about these things practically, the other side of it is, is we are not each one of us bound to everybody else's convictions so that we're all walking around worried if we're going to bother somebody else. That's not the case either. And so he doesn't address it in that way. He's saying whatever side you are, whether you are the offended or when you are offended, Be careful that you don't use that to hold it against your brother. And then he also says, you can have your conviction. You're not beholden to everybody else, but let's not do it with a brash attitude that wantonly disregards the position of others. But be sensitive to them. Be sensitive to the concern. Some people agree with drinking alcohol. Some don't. We all understand drunkenness is a sin. That means then not that somebody says necessarily that I will totally give up drinking wine or having a beer, but it does mean maybe I won't do that or flaunt it in front of someone else. That's the difference. That's the kind of thing. That's being sensitive to one another, and we've all failed in these areas. But that that is the point that he's talking about here, how we hold these different convictions. But even more than that, going down, the real issue is this, that too often we hold tightly to the wrong things. And again, we think that the force with which we hold to these matters displays the maturity and the strength of our faith. We sometimes have this idea, and it works its way inside of us, and you don't know what I'm talking about, that the more vigorously I hold to my position on this issue, the more it displays my courage and my faith. No, not necessarily. If you're If it's in terms of how I stand up for the truth of Christ for the gospel, and I'm willing to suffer for it, yes, if it's how vigorously I defend a position such as a secondary issue or a doctrinal position that doesn't relate to the essentials of the faith, then no, it doesn't show strength of faith. It shows rather maybe a a strength of faith in terms of gospel implications, but an immaturity of character. And so that's not really it. God's evaluation is different. He equates maturity, again, with the ability to hold firmly to a position while maintaining love for the brethren. That's maturity. When you can hold strongly to a conviction, when you can defend that conviction, when you can discuss it while maintaining a humble sense of unity with the brethren, that's maturity. That's the Apostle Paul. That's exactly what he showed in his life. Not everybody was at the same place that he was, clearly. None of us in this room are. But he was the very model of how we love and pursue unity in the body. This is Christ-centered conviction. This is a Christ-centered position or opinion in the matter. In this case, it's not unlike Paul's warning to the Corinthians earlier in 1 Corinthians 8.1 where he says, Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Love edifies. Love builds up. And that's precisely what he talks about here. Let us not judge one another, but let it, rather let us determine this. Not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. 
That's what we should determine. That I'm not going to be a stumbling block to my brother or sister. Knowledge without love produces an attitude of inward superiority in terms of knowledge, discernment, spirituality, insight, comprehension, personal assurance. When we have those things but it's absent love, then it's going to produce that. But when it's with love, then we can have all of those things but with, in a way that doesn't de- destroy the unity that should be among the body of Christ. That is a true desire for God's glory. So again, I just note here, what I always find interesting about this passage is that in all of these things going on, the apostle, and therefore God who is working through him, is unconcerned about all the things that they're unconcerned about. It's just, it's almost humorous. There's all of this stuff going on, and God's saying, I don't care about any of that. I just care about this, that when you act, you do it for my glory before me. That when you act, you do it walking in love. That you be convinced in your own mind. That's what God says. Not that you be drawn around to the way somebody else is convinced. And so, this is how it is. As a matter of fact, that was the very thing, wasn't it, that Christ always appealed to his disciples through the Gospels. We have our young persons group, or young adults group, John 13, 35. He says, this is what he commands us, that we love one another. Uh, One person said this. This is a great statement. I loved this statement just in how it was put. He says, while freedom is a right, it is not a guide for conduct. Love serves that purpose. Rights are to be laid aside in the interest of love. Isn't that a great statement? While freedom is a right, it is not a good guide for conduct. Love serves that purpose. And that is exactly what Paul said to the church in Galatia. Let me read it for you. In Galatians chapter 5, he says this. He says, For you were called, verse 13, you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, into something selfish and self-serving. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled. Again, here we come. In this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. What's the antidote to that? Walk by the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. That's the attitude that we need to be striving for. It's the measure, again, by which we will be evaluated by the risen Christ. It's the way that we will be, our attitudes and our actions will be evaluated by our Lord. And it marks a true citizen of the kingdom. Look at verse 17. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God, there's discussion on that phrase. Some make a distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ. But just bypassing that, just the big picture of the idea of the kingdom of God is the rule of God. The sovereign rule of God that is marked as well among his people by bearing the characteristics of being citizens of that kingdom and that rule. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Here it is that which displays possession of the realities of the new covenant, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The church is a community of God's people indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. And he is working towards these things You can take Holy Spirit with joy or each three of those. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day because he's already well established that our union with Christ and our ability to walk in the character of Christ is because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. That's the whole chapter 8 of Romans. It's because of the Holy Spirit that is in us. It is the Holy Spirit that prompts us to be convicted of sin and want to walk in righteousness. It's the Holy Spirit who shapes our character. It is by the Holy Spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh. It is by the Holy Spirit our hope is increased and our obedience encouraged and uh, our obedience uh, encouraged and our courage upheld because of his work in us unfolding for us the glories of all that Christ has accomplished for us in the gospel. Not eating or drinking again That's where we get confused. You're concerned about these things all in the name of the glory of God. God isn't concerned about that. He's saying, are you able to be weak and strong? Are you able to eat and not eat? Are you able to get vaccinated and not vaccinated and still have righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit? Or are those things causing just the opposite? 
an unrighteous attitude, a lack of peace, and certainly then a lack of joy. That's what God is concerned about. And it's in pursuit of these things as the ultimate goal that we truly serve Christ and what he says in verse 18. If you, if you live this way, then you are acceptable to God and you are approved by men. We are pleasing to God, we could say. And even those who look at this will say that is a right way to do. That is, will be confirmed as a good way and a good thing that is marking the people of God. Now, I mentioned this last week because the whole idea of this really is to talk about COVID. So let me ask just a couple of questions before I just briefly mention the last point. The question is this. When you speak about COVID, oh, here's one. Uh, when you post on social media or think within your heart towards others with different positions, can you say at the heart of your concern or attitude, or is this attitude that you are pursuing the things that make for peace and the building up of one another? Displaying joy in the Holy Spirit walking in righteousness. Or maybe we could ask this. Do you exercise and feel the same zeal in loving the brethren and pursuing holiness and serving the church as you do in arguing your position on face masks and vaccines or some other political issue? Do you feel the same passion towards how I'm loving the brethren and serving as I do with how I'm following whatever thing is a cultural conversation and a means of contention? Do you exercise and exert the same energy, time, and discipline in understanding scripture, theology, or matters of doctrine as you do in the latest information about vaccines and politics? It's amazing how some Christians couldn't explain maybe the doctrines of salvation or justification by faith, but they can give out complex details about vaccines and political agendas and other things. And you think, if you spent that same energy trying to understand the word of God more deeply and then live it out, you obviously have the intellectual capacity, then how much different the church life would be and how much different it would look. Maybe we could ask this, is my constant posting or arguing or putting forth my opinion, especially in the church, is it even necessary? Is it even necessary? Actually, Trish brought this up to me. I'm repeating her points. On this one, can you be godly, fruitful, and an instrument of grace in someone's life, listen to this, even if they never knew your opinions on COVID or face mask? Could you have fellowship and joy with one another if they never even knew what your position was on some of these things? Lastly, on this, how much time do you spend arguing your point on whatever issue it is, compared to doing and saying things that are specifically intended to promote humility and peace and love within the body of Christ, even in the midst of this contentious environment. So those are some questions that we can ask ourselves in light of these principles. Let me note just lastly here, and very, very briefly, and that is this, that, that the conscience must be protected within ourselves and within others. This, again, is not violating our own conscience. It's not treating that everything that doesn't have to do with justification or reconciliation with God is unimportant. That's not true either. It's all important. And we should think through these things as best we can as God enables us. That's not, that's not his point. And his point is, is that as you do so, be sure that you're not violating your conscience and be sure that in love you're not, trying, you're not doing something that would violate the conscience of others. Let me just read this. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the same man who eats and gives offense. Do you understand that the same action can be sin for one person and not sin for another person? Again, that shows how God bypasses the thing itself. God is concerned with the hard attitude towards him and others. To use a rather obvious thing, uh, again, many, many, many things could be added. Somebody can have a glass of wine and it's sin because they're defiling their conscience. Another person can do it and have joy in the Holy Spirit and not be defiling their conscience. That's not the issue. The, we focus on the wine. God is focused on the heart. Why are you doing what you're doing? And so that's the idea here. But they are evil to the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts 
is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. This is the God-centeredness of our lives, that we live it before God by faith. This principle can be summarized in these two points. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God, in verse 20. Have as your own conviction before God. Number two, second part of that principle, is whatever is not from faith is sin, because whatever you do, what you can't do with a clear conscience is sin. So we need to protect our own conscience and our walk with the Lord by not violating it. And then we need to walk in love, which is the big idea, and not do anything that would violate the conscience of another intentionally, disregardedly. Is that a word? I don't know. But without disregarding their conscience and who they are. In short, we are to be careful to do what we do out of faith in Christ, care for our brethren, and concern to foster an environment of love pleasing to Christ, protecting our conscience and the conscience of others as best we can. And as we noted earlier in what's going to be demonstrated in baptism that we'll go into now, is Paul has already said, look, as the church, we have been redeemed in Christ. We are united to Christ. We are indwelled by the Spirit of Christ. And so he says in a marvelous phrase that pictures that, he says in Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 5, that we are members of one another. We're members of one another. And just to use that kind of illustration as he builds on that in 1 Corinthians 12, that means when we offend one, we're harming the whole body, not just that person. When we don't walk in love, we're harming the whole body. Our sin never stays contained. It spreads like leaven within our own heart and within the church. And so we must be careful that we want to guard against that. And when we fail, and we will, it just means this. Part of our accepting one another in the broader sense is this, that we forgive one another, that we're willing to overlook offenses as well. And that when somebody comes to us, and we should come to another if we've offended them knowingly, Ask for forgiveness, and hopefully forgiveness will be extended and reconciliation will take place. That's a picture of the gospel, isn't it? Being reconciled to God. And what we celebrate in baptism is that reconciliation uh, tonight in the life of Stephen, who is being baptized in water here before us as a testimony, but has, by the Spirit of God, already been baptized into the body of Christ. And that's what we celebrate. So let me pray, and then... We'll come in to hear the testimony. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you that your kindness towards us who know you, your love towards us is perfect and is not like ours toward one another. But we thank you as well that your spirit is working in us and that you're growing us and that you are shaping us to be like your son. And we are thankful that you give us Ordinances not only such as baptism, but the Lord's Supper that help us to be reminded of that every time we come, that we are the body of Christ. We are, to, we are to love one another because we share a common salvation and hope in Lord. And so help us to walk that way and help us to be quick to repent both to you and then to one another as we need to when we fail. And Lord, such is the grace of Christ and your grace to us in Christ put on display. And if there are any here who do not know you, whom this is strange to, I pray that you would convict them and show them that their sin indeed is as grievous as your word says it is, but your grace is as real as you declare as well, and that they would come to Christ. These things I pray in your name. Amen.